0: Page seven of your uh, order of worship. We're going to be in Isaiah today and throughout Advent. I'll explain that here in a moment. Isaiah nine: People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. All men are like grass, their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Indeed, we trust that your word stands forever. And you have told us that your word is a light unto our path. So would you, as we surround ourselves around this passage that speaks of light into darkness, would you be a light to the path of everyone here? Oh, Jesus, show up with the light of your glory, and shine it upon each of us this morning, we pray. Amen. Okay, before I get into the passage this morning, let me take just a brief moment to introduce what we're going to be doing uh, with Advent this year. Arguably the most popular prophetic work in scripture is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is known uh, for his balance of judgment and promise. So you're going to find some of the fiercest words of rebuke in Isaiah and then also some of the most breathtaking beautiful promises in Isaiah and these promises are famous for their messianic theme. The most beloved prophecies of the coming Messiah are found in Isaiah and that's why if you hear an Old Testament passage quoted during the Christmas season chances are it's from the book of Isaiah And so what I thought we would do this Advent season is relive Isaiah's promises that find their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. Advent is a season of longing, not arrival. On Christmas we feast, but now we wait. And so we're going to turn to Isaiah to lead us through this season of waiting for the coming Messiah. I'm going to use three uh, his three most famous promises of the coming of Jesus. Isaiah 53, of course, is probably his most famous prophecy, but that uh, foretells the death of Jesus. I'm going to use Isaiah 7, 9, and 11, which speak of the coming of Jesus. And those three can be summed up for us in this way. The promise of a Messiah unto us, with us, and for us. So today, the promise is unto us a child is born. And that child born unto us is depicted by Isaiah as light shining into the darkness. I shared uh, this story during a Christmas sermon many years ago, but it's class and it's worth repeating uh, for this passage in particular. I went to seminary with several of my uh, best friends from college and we were single, I mean I didn't get married till after seminary, so we were single, kind of doing the bachelor thing and so it wasn't your typical graduate uh, school experience. Essentially we just prolonged college for another 4 years. And one of the ways that one of the ways we would entertain entertain ourselves during seminary studies is we would come up with just silly little games with huge consequences for the loser. And the worst of these took place this time around this time of the year. Can't remember the game, but I will never forget the consequence. I lost, and what that meant was my friend was allowed to uh, decorate my car in Christmas decorations however he wanted, and not only did I have to drive it until Christmas, I wasn't allowed to tell anyone that I lost a bet, meaning I had to pretend like I actually wanted to do this to my car. So I lost, gave him the keys to my car. He took over a few hours, and when he returned... It was uh, worse than I could have imagined. He had strung Christmas lights on every inch of my car's exterior, somehow figured a way to wire that to my car battery so that when the car was on, it was lit up like Rockefeller Plaza. I had to drive it for a month. Everywhere I went, people would honk, laugh, wave, roll down the window, Merry Christmas, you know, all that stuff. The worst was when I got set up on a blind date, and I begged my friend to let me take the lights off, but my fellow seminarian training to be a pastor showed no mercy. Now remember, I can't tell her it was because I lost a bet. I had to pretend like I thought a car covered in lights was a good idea. So I pick her up, Clark Griswold's house on wheels, and I will never forget, she gets in the car, and she just says wow. Again, I can't, so I I respond, what can I say? I just really love the birth of Jesus. Have you ever wondered what the deal is with Christmas lights? Where did that come from? Why do we do that? It's such a familiar ritual that we take it for granted, but it's actually a very significant tradition representing the foremost imagery of Christ's birth. Light Into darkness. And so to celebrate his coming, we decorate everything with lights shining into the darkness of night. Those little twinkling lights on your tree speak of a cosmic battle. They tell the story of heaven's invasion into the darkness of our reality. And it all begins here with the promise from Isaiah. We're going to look at light promised to us and then light unto us. Let's start with the promise. Verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So is picking up on a theme that is very prominent in Scripture. All throughout the Bible, you will see this imagery of light and darkness used. But there's debate among scholars and theologians on what exactly it represents. Some see it through the moral lens, where light is righteousness and darkness is unrighteousness. Some see it through... A worldview world lens where light is truth and darkness is falsehood. Others see it through the lens of faith where light is belief and darkness is unbelief. But I'm among those who say we don't have to choose. The Bible doesn't ask us to choose. The paradigm of light and darkness is an all-encompassing picture where light represents God, His design, His intentions, His authority, in whatever realm you're discussing. And darkness is the absence of God and his intentions. But this should not be viewed, when the Bible talks about light and darkness, it should not be viewed with the simplistic good versus evil paradigm. The stories that we tell usually uh, follow a binary good versus evil storyline. So for example, Star Wars also uses light and dark, obviously. There's the, the dark side and the light But these are very very discernible camps, parts that are in war against each other and fighting to see who wins. This is how we tell our stories. But the Bible story is grimmer than that. There is only the dark side. Isaiah does not view existence as light and dark in competition. Instead, according to Isaiah, darkness seems to have won. The people walk in. In darkness, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, as if darkness is this pervasive norm of existence. The Bible views the fall of Genesis 3 as an enveloping event that has essentially created a veil over all of existence such that we live constantly in its shadow. Falsehood, not truth, is the norm. Unrighteousness, not righteousness. Hatred, not love. Violence, not peace. These are the predominant realities of the world as we know it. And Isaiah says, this is both personally true and socially true. Personally, he says, the people who walk in darkness. The Bible uses the word walk to speak not necessarily to our conscious choices and actions, but to our unconscious, taken for granted way of being. The imagery makes sense. We don't consciously think about walking. It's just what we do without thinking. So in the scriptures, our walk is who we truly are. Who we are when we aren't consciously trying to be something else. And it's there. In our truest being, Isaiah says, we find darkness. You may fool others. You may even fool yourself. But you cannot fool scripture. The Bible has a diagnosis for all of us. For our truest self, our thought life, our hidden desires, our unseen motivations, our secret habits in the sight of God, before whom all secrets are exposed, we walk in darkness. But there's also a social darkness that he's speaking of here. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness. Our world is a dark place, is what that's claiming. And we could turn to the news or social media feeds to convince you of that, but I don't think we need to. We ourselves dwell in this land of deep darkness, and we have been harmed by it. The longer I'm in ministry, the more convinced I become, there is not one good story out there. Not one. You may hide from your story. You may rewrite your story into something that it is not. You may tell yourself and others that it's not that bad, but these are all just coping mechanisms to deal with the land of deep darkness. If you and I were to sit down and I were to start probing into your story and you were committed to telling the truth, perhaps for the first time, that would end in both of us weeping over the darkness of your story. You've been mistreated, you've been abused, you've had your heart broken, you've been abandoned, you've been neglected. You've been exploited, you've been stolen from, you've been lied to, you've been slandered against. You are not just a villain of darkness, you are the victim of darkness. Personally, we walk in darkness. Socially, we dwell in a land of deep darkness. Oh, how deep is the darkness! And yet, into the darkness, the prophet speaks. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And then verses 3 through 5, vividly uh, imagine the expulsion of darkness with the language of conquest, like like they're celebrating the victory of the war of light. Isaiah speaks of this great light as though it is a person who has come to wage war on the darkness. He says, you, the light is a person, This you must you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The idea, it's a lot, the idea is is that the figure is going to come and utterly annihilate the darkness that has for so long enveloped our world. Who is this great warrior of light? The prophecy takes a strange turn. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. A child. A newborn child is to be this conquering light. That's his promise. And indeed, that is what we celebrate In Christmas. We've seen the light promised to us. Let's consider light unto us. Have you ever wondered why the Christmas narratives all take place at night? Think that's a coincidence? In the darkness of the night, the glory of the Lord appears in the sky to the shepherds. In the darkness of night, a star appears to guide the magi. You think those details are significant? They are. They are profound statements that the birth of Christ was the birth of light into this land of deep darkness. Our New Testament reading came from John's gospel. The difference between John and the other three, uh, the other three are called synoptic gospels. John's a little different. He doesn't just tell the story, he tells the meaning behind the story. And so when the other authors tell of the events of the birth, John tells the meaning of Christ's birth. This is what he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John views Jesus not just as a light, but the light of all existence. He is the source of truth, goodness, beauty, love, joy, all that light represents in Scripture. And then John says this in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The obvious, but often overlooked aspect of the light and darkness imagery is that light always wins always they are not equal forces when light and darkness meet light always overwhelms the darkness if you turn on the light switch and it stays dark in the room you never think well i guess light lost that time you change the bulb you know it must not be working because light always works. It always casts out darkness. In fact, darkness is nothing more than the absence of light. So the darkness of this world is nothing more than the absence of God. But John 1 is saying that the presence of God is returning to the world. That Christmas is the arrival of the light that since the fall has been missing. So does this newborn child actually deliver on Isaiah's great promise? Well, that seemed to be the case as you watch his life. Wherever he goes, darkness scatters. The darkness of disease, the darkness of shame, the darkness of sin, the darkness of self-righteous religion, demonic darkness, all darkness disperses in the presence of this man. And yet, this is not the fullness of what Isaiah promised. Only a glimpse of light, not the conquering of light that we see in Isaiah 9. Well, that conquest would require much more. I wonder if, having said everything I've said this morning, if you have a greater appreciation for this odd detail that is included in the account of his crucifixion. While Jesus was on the cross, it says at the sixth hour, that's high noon, high noon when the light should be shining the brightest. There was darkness over all the land. On the cross, the light of the world was extinguished by darkness. And buried within the black shadows of a tomb. This is the cost of our darkness. But John said, the light would shine into the darkness and the darkness would not overcome it. It seems like the message of the cross is that darkness has overwhelmed the light. Well, as you know, at the dawn of the third day, again, don't miss that, the nativity of Jesus takes place at night. The resurrection accounts all make sure to note that it takes place as the sun rises in the morning and chases away the night. At the dawn of the new morning, we love to sing, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, yet bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. The resurrection of Jesus was the dawn of an eternal day. The launch of the conquest of light that we read about in Isaiah 9. A conquest that will continue until Jesus returns in the blinding splendor of his glory and every hint of darkness is banished. The new Jerusalem of Revelation 21. God's Eternal city that is to come and will descend from heaven and dwell on earth has this detail. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp, the source of the light, is the Lamb. By its light, by the light of the Lamb, the nations walk. So, Isaiah 9, the people walk in darkness. Revelation 21, all the nations will walk. In his light. So for this, we wait. As, I, as Israel before us waited the advent of Isaiah 9's light unto us, we now wait for light's return to us. But as we wait, and this is my application for us this morning, we do not wait in darkness. It is not as if the light came to make an appearance on Christmas. And then the light was turned off and then will be turned back on again when he returns. Not at all. The light is bright and active in this dark world as we speak. Active again, both personally and socially as we've discussed. And by way of application, I want to press in on both of those. Jesus uses the phrase light of the world in two different ways. First, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So Isaiah 9, the people walking in darkness, Jesus, those who follow me will not walk in darkness. Remember, walk is who we are, the essence of our being. Jesus is saying, you don't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be dark. You don't have to relegate yourself to a life of darkness. Follow Jesus and he will light up your life. What are you going to do about the darkness of your own heart? What will you do with all of your darkened thoughts and words and deeds? And I'm not talking... I'm talking more than just forgiveness for the darkness. I'm talking about banishing the darkness from your life. It doesn't have to be this way. You can't do it, but Jesus can. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, implying that he alone is the source of light to our darkness. If you're not a follower of Jesus, my question to you is, are you not sick of the darkness in your life? Do you not lament what you have become? So many past regrets. So much guilt and shame. And it's not just that you want to be forgiven. You want to change. You don't have to be. You don't have to be and do what you continue to be and do. The promise Jesus has for you is that it doesn't have to be this way. So yes, of course, I proclaim to you his forgiveness, but I also proclaim to you his change. You don't have to walk in darkness. Follow Jesus and walk in the light. And followers of Jesus, the call to you is to return to the light that you know is the source of change. Having a lot of conversations with people these days who are really struggling. Their faith is weak, their besetting sins are taking over, their doubts and anxieties are becoming oppressive. They're just really struggling. And in nearly every case, it's the same story. COVID got them out of their routine of following Jesus. And so I say every time listen, let's not complicate this. There's no need to over spiritualize this. You're not coming to church. You're not in community. You're not practicing the spiritual disciplines, meaning you have cut yourself off from the source of light and darkness is creeping back in. So, Christian, this Advent season, recommit yourself to exposure to the light. Word and prayer, fellowship, worship, sacrament. These are the ways Jesus shines his light into our lives, banishing the darkness in our lives. So recommit yourself to them. But I don't just have a personal application here, but also a social application for this land of deep darkness. The other way Jesus uses the phrase light of the world, he says, I'm the light of the world. But then he says, disciples, you are the light of the world. Which is it? Well, Jesus is the light of the world. But as Jesus fills his followers with his light, we then become the bearers of Christ's light. We are the manifestation of his light to this dark World, Such that through us, those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone and you are that light. Everywhere we go, our words, our deeds, or to use Isaiah's language, our walk stands in contrast to this land of deep darkness. We are Christmas lights is what we are. This land of darkness has seen in us a glimmer of light, a twinkling of the light of the world through a people who live in defiance to the darkness with the light of their lives. So here's my question. When was the last time you stood out because you were a follower of Jesus? Just somebody went, whoa, that's different. When was the last time in this dark world of fear people saw you and said, where did you get that peace and joy? How's that even possible these days? In a dark world of hatred and bitterness where everybody hates each other, people said, Man, what's with all your forgiveness and mercy? You're so kind. In a world of overindulgence, people say to you, How are you so content? Nobody in America is content. How are you so content? World of selfish greed. You're just giving everything away. You're so generous. What is this? world of injustice. You're a person who's actually a part of the solution in a world where everyone's suffering. How are you suffering that way? Nobody suffers that way. Brothers and sisters, we should be noticed is what I'm trying to say. I'll take it further. Christians are supposed to be a little weird. You know that, right? A little awkward, a little weird. You're following Jesus. That picture of me driving my car around with Christmas lights is actually a pretty good picture of the Christian life. There is something to cultural relevance. You know I'm all for it, but not at the cost of cultural complicity. Not at the cost. There's just no difference between you and everyone else. We engage this culture as a witness to another culture, a culture of light, not darkness. You should be noticed. Depending on how deep the darkness is, you should be blinding. So the light of the world is in the world as we speak, and it's in the world through you. And in this way, we are living witnesses to what is to come. A small eschaton at work. Our lives a preview of where this world is heading. So as we wait for the light of the world, we live in this world of darkness as a demonstration of what is to come. When the light of the world returns, and finally and forever, the darkness will be banished. Let me pray. So fill us, Lord, with this light that we might be a light to the world. We need you. We need the source of light. We need you to shine in our hearts and in our lives that it might reflect from us as witnesses to you, the light of the world. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for coming unto us to shine into our dark lives and this dark world. Now as we partake, would you feed us with that light in Jesus' name?